Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, we are continuing our study in the book of Jude. And we've said that this little book is often overlooked. Uh, most of us have probably not heard a series on the book of Jude, partly because of its brevity, uh, but as well as the complexity of the subject matter with which it deals. And thus far, we've said, seen how Jude has he set out to write a letter uh, to his fellow brothers and sisters in the faith related to the salvation that they share in Christ. But because of different circumstances, uh, specifically false teaching that was infiltrating the church, he writes a different letter with a different intent. And the purpose of Jude's letter is stated in verse 3 when he says this. He says, contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Last week we saw how Jude gave this negative warning about being aware of false teaching and being on guard against false teaching. And this morning in our passage, Jude now turns to this positive exhortation to those who are in Christ of how to stand firm in the midst of false teaching and heresy. So that's where we're going this morning, but would you go with me before the Lord one more time as we ask His blessing in His Word. Let's pray. Weak and weary sinners we are As we come before your word this morning, Lord, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would come now, that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, that we might receive this truth, your word, and not only receive it, but we might act upon it, that in your Spirit's power, that we might fall deeply in love more and more with the person of Christ as we see him displayed in the gospel this morning. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do this. For again, we are needy and dependent upon you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the largest church in America is Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, and it is pastored by Joel Osteen. Many of you have probably heard of Joel Osteen. Uh, And he preaches a message that says that God desires for you to experience physical health and a mass material possessions, and prosperity. And while the vast majority of his 40,000-member congregation has not realized this message in their own lives, this prosperity gospel has gained Joel Osteen a net worth of over $40 million. The second largest congregation in America is North Point Community Church that is pastored by Andy Stanley in Atlanta, Georgia. And recently, a few months ago, Andy Stanley preached a sermon where he urged Christians to, quote, unhitch their faith from the Old Testament. In that that sermon, Stanley said that while he believes that the Old Testament is divinely inspired, he says it's not the basis of Christianity. And furthermore, Stanley told his congregation, quote, Jesus' new covenant does not need to be propped up by the Old Testament, end quote. Andy Stanley's teaching is really not anything new. It's kind of a, a variation of a heresy from the first or second century with Marcion. Marcion in the first and second century uh, didn't like the Old Testament because it revealed a God of justice and a God of wrath. And he couldn't reconcile the God of the Old Testament. What he said was different from the God of the New Testament. So he disregarded the Old Testament. He said it wasn't authoritative in matters of Christian doctrine and of morals. It seems that Andy Stanley is holding to a similar belief and driven by a desire to remove what Stanley calls a stumbling block for many, 
Namely, what we read about God in the Old Testament, he argues that we should divorce the Old Testament from the New Testament. And Stanley says, in doing this, that this will, quote, be liberating for people who find it virtually impossible to embrace the worldview and the value system depicted in the story of ancient Israel, end quote. Now, together, these two pastors ministered over 80,000 people each Sunday morning. And most of these attending their services, they hear their message that's being preached, and they remain unaware of this falsehood that they're subjecting themselves to, and furthermore, risking embracing. And this is evidenced by their growing number of people that are continuing to flock to these churches. Now, there's very little that I would probably find in agreement theologically with Joel Osteen, but there are things that I would agree with Andy Stanley on theologically, but I think this teaching in particular regarding the irrelevance of the Old Testament is unbiblical, it's divisive, and it's detrimental to the covenantal structure of the scriptures that we see throughout. Many Christians are being led astray by false teachings such as these heresies that are masqueraded as the true gospel. Christians are far too often unprepared to confront false teaching and false doctrine when we entertain it. You and I have to realize this morning that we are not immune to the temptation of not only hearing, but even furthermore, embracing heresy and false doctrine. And so Jude knows the difficulty in resisting false teaching, and so he speaks directly to how the believer can stand firm in the face of false teaching. And so in order for the Christian to, as he says, contend for the faith, Jude is going to call us to three things this morning. He's going to call us to remember to take action, and to extend mercy. In order for the believer to remain steadfast in the face of false teaching, Jude says the believer has to remember. Notice what he says in verse 17. He says, But you must remember, beloved, speaking of his compassion and his love for these fellow brothers and sisters, as he will do several times in this passage. He says, Remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Now remember, in the previous section, Judas recounted the judgment on those who propagated false teaching in Israel's past. And as Judas saying, as if to say, if you don't remember and learn from the past, you run the risk of repeating the same mistakes in the future. And so he pleads with them one more time, to remember the apostles predicted that there would be false teaching and it would rise within the church in an attempt to derail their faith from the true gospel that they had formerly received. See, as sinful human beings, you and I are prone to forgetfulness. We forget things all the time. We forget where we place our keys, where we put our phone, some of us, our children. We forget the promises of God. We're forgetful people. A study was done a while back about churchgoers and estimating how much they remember from Sunday's sermon after it's preached. And it was noted that a few hours on Sunday afternoon after the sermon was preached, many people could remember about 30 to 40% of the sermon. But then by the end of the week, that percentage dropped down to about 5 or 10% of what they could remember for the sermon. Now as a pastor, when you preach a bad sermon, that's kind of a comforting thing. But it shows and illustrates how forgetful we really are. 
And since we so easily forget, remembering plays a vital role in the life of the believer to withstand false teaching when we're uh, in contact with it. And the reason why Jude reminds us and his audience this morning that there will be false teaching and it will infiltrate the church is so that we're not shocked and we're not caught off guard and unprepared by it when it happens. Years ago, I was learning to scuba dive, and one of the things that our instructor told us was that at some point, your equipment is going to malfunction. You're going to lose your mask, and when you're underwater, your regulator is going to fall out, or your BCD is going to not inflate, and you have to do it manually, and something's going to happen. And so in this pool, we had to kind of replay all these different things, these problems that could arise in order for us to be certified. So that when we got out into the water, when one of those things happened, we could remember and go back on our training, what we had learned uh, in our training time in the pool. Well, the same is true with responding with false teaching that we encounter. Remembering can actually give us peace to stand firm and confidently guard our faith from anything that goes against the truth of God's word. Remembering is a necessary ingredient to withstand false teaching, but it's not enough in and of itself. It's not enough just to know that something is coming, though that is very helpful. We must engage in active and ongoing preparation so that we can remain steadfast and persevere in our faith when we're faced with false teaching. You may have seen in the news uh, several weeks ago in the aftermath of Hurricane Michael, the house in Mexico Beach that withstood the hurricane. It stood, if you've seen pictures or video of it, the houses surrounding it were just completely demolished all the way to the ground. And yet this one house stood unscathed by the storm. Well, that house belongs to Dr. LeBron Lackey, who actually lives here in Tennessee. And when he was designing his house, he did research in order to see, knowing that the certainty of a storm was going to come at some point to hit his house in the future. And so he did research and he studied and he built his house and designed it in such a way so that it could withstand the storms. And that meant that he had 40-foot concrete pilings that he had that were reinforced with metal brackets. He had reinforced walls that could withstand up to 250-mile-an-hour winds. And then heavy-duty windows that could withstand projectiles of 4 or 5 pounds up to 120 miles an hour. The reason why this home withstood the hurricane was because Dr. Lackey was proactive in equipping the home with everything it needed to withstand the storm. He utilized the resources that were available to him in order to ensure that he could have a strong foundation. Well, Jude's antidote for the Christian to resist and persevere in the face of false teaching is not passivity, it's not wishful thinking, it's actually to be proactive and take action using the resources that God has granted to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. More than just remembering, Jude calls us to action in order to contend with a persevering faith, as he calls it. And here's the key Jude gives us to contending for the faith. It's revealed in verse 21. Look with me. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. That's his antidote. Keep ourselves in the love of God. So if we're going to withstand the assault of false teaching and heresy that will infiltrate the church, we're to keep ourselves in the love of God. What Jude is ultimately calling us to is to contend with and for our own souls. Now if we go back to the beginning of this letter, if you look at verse 1, we read there, it says, To those who are called 
beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, at first glance, that seems to be a little bit in contradiction to Jude calling us in verse 21 to keep ourselves in the love of God. Verse 1 stands to to say that God's sovereignty, it's God who keeps us in Jesus Christ, he says. So which one is it? Does God keep us or do we keep ourselves? And if Jude was here, he would reply with a resounding yes. We are called, loved, and kept by God the Father, and he promises to preserve our faith in himself. But our human responsibility as his creation includes striving and keeping ourselves in God's love. This is what Jesus says himself in John chapter 15. He says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. A continual action. Elsewhere, Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. See, we can't separate the command here in verse 21 to keep ourselves in the love of God from what Jude says here in verse 1. Our call to action is grounded in what is true about us in Christ. Namely, that we are, if we are in Him, we are united to Him because of what God has done through His grace for us. And so the imperative, the command here in verse 21, is rooted in the indicative, in the statements of fact and truth about who we are in verse 1. That we are called, beloved, and kept by God. The Apostle Paul speaks to our striving when he writes in Philippians 2. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Did you hear what Paul said? He said, work out, not for, your salvation. And the Puritan great John Owen said it this way. He said, God works in us and with us, not against us and without us. As we're confident of the love of God, the Father, and dependent on the grace that God so generously gives to us, then we can persevere and keep ourselves in the love of God. Our union with Christ and the reality of His ongoing grace allows us to stand firm in the face of heresy and remain abiding in God's love. Because Christ has wed himself to us as his bride, the church. He's lavished his eternal love upon us, and therefore his unshakable and unrelenting love for us gives us the security to respond in submission and obedience to him. Because we know that we are loved in Christ. Okay, you may be thinking, well, how does this practically play out? What does it really mean to keep myself in the love of God? Well, Jude offers us three means by which we keep ourselves in God's love. Look first there at verse 20 in the beginning. He says, Beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. The faith that Jude is referring to here is the truth of the gospel as revealed in God's word. The greatest way that we can contend for the faith and persevere in the love of God is to grow in our deepening understanding of the gospel. See, there can be this misperception as Christians when we come into faith with Christ that the gospel is the doorway in, but then we kind of graduate on. We move on to bigger and better things. I, I've already got that. I want something else. And Paul says that could be nothing further from the truth in Colossians 2. For there he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, 
So now walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught. Paul says, go back and continue to rehearse and recall the gospel and the way that you entered. That is the way that you continue. Christ alone is the ultimate foundation. We rest upon him alone as he's revealed in the gospel for our salvation. So this means that each day we have to rehearse and repeat the gospel lest we forget and grow complacent and open ourselves up to all kinds of falsehood and false teaching. Keeping ourselves in the love of God is primarily the practice of going deeper and deeper into the simple, glorious truths of God's word. We all know how powerful our minds are. We've all experienced this at any given moment during the day. All of a sudden, we just are attacked, and our conscience haunts us. And our enemy just blindsides us with past sins out of the blue, failures, disappointments that we've had. In an attempt to devalue and tell us that we're unworthy of love and we're not valued, Or doubts and fears come to our minds and we feel helpless as a result of it. The only way that we can compete against these voices is with the more powerful voice of our Savior speaking his truth to us in the gospel and reminding ourselves of these promises. So for many of us, we need to start listening less to ourselves and the lies of our enemy And we need to start speaking God's truth to our hearts and our minds. Paul says we need to set our minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are below. And so that begs the question this morning, whose voice are you listening to? Are you listening to the the enemy? Are you listening to the voice of your Savior? who's speaking his love and his delight over you as his child. See, just as a tree cannot grow and flourish away from its root system, so we as believers cannot grow and flourish and stand firm away from the truths of Scripture. Are you in God's Word? Do you see the necessity of spending consistent, even daily time, in the truths of Scripture? to be fed and nourished on your soul. Next, Jude says we're to keep ourselves in the love of God by praying in the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to remain in the love of God without dependent prayer. And the kind of prayer that Jude's calling us to is not prayer that's focused on our own desires and our own agendas, but rather that is focused on the will and work of the Father and His kingdom. Now, if you're like me, often you find that your prayers are relegated to things that you want. And maybe a few prayers sprinkled in for others who might have physical needs that you lift up. Too often, many of my prayers are simply just seeking validation for what I think I need and what I desire. What about your prayer life? Is it non-existent? Is it rote and redundant? Does it lack vision and thoughtfulness? See, what Jude's telling us here is that only when we see prayer as a vital means of keeping ourselves in the love of God will our prayer life be transformed 
and spirit-directed and led. Again, God's redemptive work provides the foundation for our security and our salvation, but His Spirit leads us to participate in His preservation of our faith as we devote ourselves to the fellowship and communion of God through prayer. Ephesians 6, Paul is speaking about putting on the armor of God so that we might resist the schemes of the evil one, which includes resisting false teaching. And there he says, pray at all times in the Spirit. See, if we're dependent upon God in prayer, we will not be easily led astray by false teaching. But yet the Christian who neglects praying in the power of the Spirit opens himself or herself up to all kinds of falsehood. Well, maybe you're thinking, okay, that sounds good, but I, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to pray. Well, God hasn't left us alone. He's given us his very word. So might I suggest, if you're struggling with even learning how to pray, maybe start with the Psalms. Praying through the Psalms. I was reading this morning in Psalm 46 that God is our refuge. He's our strength. He's an ever-present help in times of trouble. That is a good prayer to pray. You cannot go wrong with that. As we pray God's word back to him, the spirit does something incredible in our lives as it takes those truths, those rich truths of the gospel, and it puts them deeper and deeper into our soul with greater conviction and greater belief. Praying in the power of the spirit gives us the power that we need to stand firm and persevere. So we're kept in God's love by building ourselves up in the faith and praying in the power of the Spirit. And finally, Jude says, we keep ourselves in God's love by waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, when I first read that, that seemed kind of odd to me, that one of the ways that we combat false teaching is by waiting on Jesus to return. But Jude tells us that actually waiting with expectancy and being anxious of Christ's return, it actually can help us from embracing false doctrine. And Jude's point is that understanding our future actually impacts how we live in this present life. The reason why we experience frustration and disappointment and failures and anger and bitterness and every other emotion is because this is the reality of living life in a fallen and broken world. This is life between the advents, wrought full of sin and brokenness. But now for those who are in Christ, eternal life is already our present possession. Paul mentioned this earlier, the the already not yet reality of the Christian life. That is in our possession. It cannot be taken away, but yet we don't understand and have not fully experienced the fullness of that because we're not glorified with Christ yet. And so this is what creates that tension. The tension between the reality of the presence of sin that we still deal with every day and the longing for the final act of God's redemption when he returns where there will be no more sin. See, if you're a believer and you're a child of God, you know the mercy of God. You've tasted it. You've experienced what it's like to have your your sin forgiven. You know what it's like to experience God's grace very acutely in your life. And you long for more of that taste. You long for a greater blessing of that mercy from God in fullness. 
Whereas the unbeliever and those trusting in their own strength, they're waiting for God's judgment and His wrath. We're not waiting for that. That has been satisfied by Christ. We are waiting for the fullness of His mercy to be ushered in when He returns. And this is the reason why waiting is so hard. I've never met anyone who likes to wait. Traffic jams, oh, I love them. Long lines, oh, they're the best. No one likes to wait. And the reason why is because we're longing for Christ to return. We're longing to be with our Creator who made us to be with Him. Romans 8 says, even the creation is groaning. And Luke says, if, if we don't praise and worship God, the rocks will cry out. For creation was made to worship the Creator. And so as we grow in hopeful anticipation for the mercy of Jesus to be revealed at His return, it will change how we view our current circumstances and what we walk through in this life. And so growing in hope of Christ's return, what it does is it adjusts our expectations of what we think is going to happen in this life, especially when we deal with pain and suffering and disappointment. See, we'll be less and less surprised and confused by trials and suffering because it's promised to us and it's a reality in this broken world. But the sure hope of Christ's return and of that mercy being ushered in and unleashed in the new heavens and new earth, that gives us the persevering power by His Spirit working through us to maintain and strive forward and continue in persevering faith. Jude calls us to remember and take action. Lastly, more briefly, he calls us to extend mercy. Paul read earlier from Zechariah about the vision that God gave him. Now, if you'll remember during Zechariah's reign that Israel was kind of ending the 70 years of captivity and things didn't seem all that hopeful at the moment. But through this vision that Zechariah is given, great hope was given to him that God was coming. He was coming with mercy. He was coming to renew the promises to build his people up again. And furthermore, Zechariah was shown that not only was God committed to showering his people with mercy, but he was actually going to do it through the means of his people. And in God's mercy, we read that Joshua's filthy garments, his sin, his uncleanness, was replaced with pure vestments, symbolizing righteousness and purity. And all who followed Joshua in humble obedience were privileged to invite their neighbors to experience and come sit under God's vine and his fig tree, it says, to come into his kingdom and experience his peace and his blessing. See, for the Christian, we have the privilege of contending for our faith Because God through Christ has granted us salvation. But not only do we have the joy of contending for our own faith, we have the joy of extending mercy to those around us as well. See, God has designed us to be the means by which His mercy and grace is extended into the lives of others, into the lives of our neighbors, our co-workers, our classmates, and our friends. We are called to be the mercy of God in the lives of others. We're called to be that small foretaste of what is yet to come when Christ returns again. 
verse 22 and 23, Jude explains how we're called to extend mercy in different circumstances with different kinds of people who are struggling with false teaching. And he lists three categories here. He says, first, to the one who's doubting, the one who's questioning, they're unsure, they're investigating, but they're not yet really fully embracing unbelief. He says we're called to engage with that person, to engage patiently, speaking truth that is seasoned with gentleness and love and compassion. Our call is to be thoughtful and intelligent in interacting with questions of faith that others may have. And then to the one who has been misled and goes beyond questioning and doubting, but actually begins to move forward into false teaching and embracing it, Jude calls us to, again, lovingly and mercifully to warn that brother and sister of the grave dangers and consequences of leaving and removing themselves from the truth of God's Word. He says, do this in hopes that saving others, we might save others by snatching them out of the fire, Jude says. And then to this last group, Jude says, to those who are just headlong into sin and rebellion, embracing the falsehood and false doctrine, he says, show mercy with fear. With those who've gone too far, we're to despise the sin, as he says, hating even the garments stained by their flesh. We have to be discerning and wise in how we engage with those people so that we too are not drawn in to embracing falsehood. But notice that he still says we are called to extend mercy, even to the one who is rebelling and embracing false teaching. For Jesus reminds us in his own words, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. One pastor says you can reverse it and say the same thing. Blessed are those who have been shown mercy, for they will be merciful to others. See, notice that Jude doesn't call us to judgmentalism. He doesn't say shame those who are struggling and doubting. He doesn't say get on social media and vilify them because they're in their struggle. No, he says show mercy. Engage with them with the truth of the gospel that you might convert the unconverted and strengthen the doubter upon the gospel once more. See, we as the church are to be the object lesson of mercy because we have received mercy from Jesus Christ in untold measure. What is our attitude towards people who are struggling and doubting or even those who are beginning to embrace false gospel? Do we write them off? Do we respond with self-righteousness? Anger? Why don't they get their act together? Do we dare engage with them with the mercy of Christ that he might use us as the means to bring them to repentance and faith and embracing the gospel? See, one of the ways we can evaluate how well we grasp and understand God's mercy is by looking at how we treat other sinners. How do you treat the alcoholic? How do you treat the homeless man, the homosexual? How do you treat that difficult family member that you'll sit across from at the Thanksgiving meal this week? Do you extend mercy with the love of Christ because you have been shown mercy? See, as we keep ourselves in the love of God by remembering 
and growing in sound doctrine through active study of God's word and prayerful dependence in the spirit and then extending mercy to others, our assurance of the gospel grows and grows, enabling us to more confidently and graciously extend that same mercy and that gospel into the lives of others. May we here, as the people of Zion Presbyterian Church, not be known as people who are self-righteous and judgmental, but people who extend mercy because we are messengers of God's mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look back and remember our own plight, that we rebelled against you, not trusting your good gifts, thinking that you were withholding something from us, and we went our own way embracing the lie of our enemy. Lord, as we look and see on the cross what you have done and the lengths you have gone to, that your son would come and subject himself to the brokenness and sinfulness of this world for our sake so that we might be shown mercy, so that we might be clothed in righteous garments in pure white to stand before the throne of God, holy and pure, not because of anything in us, but because you have extended mercy. Lord, would you make us a people who extend mercy to others? Would you move us out into the lives of others, taking great care to hold out the gospel, being wise in how we engage, but never removing ourselves and shaming others, but calling them to repentance, calling them to embrace the truth of your word so that they might experience freedom, freedom everlasting. And Lord, we do, we long for that day, that day when you'll return and that we will shake off all the things that hinder us in this life. But until that day, you have granted us your spirit, so may we strive and strain with every amount of energy that we have so that we can remain in your love until that day when we meet you face to face for all eternity to stand in your presence and enjoy it. We pray this in Christ's matchless name. Amen.